I'm going to be reading from Psalms 130. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you keep a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I am counting on the Lord. Yes, I am counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than the centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than the centuries long for the dawn. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for where the Lord there is unfailing love, his redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. And that was from Psalm 130. Now if you want to turn to Acts chapter 15, where we'll be continuing our teaching. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch in Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the Christians, unless you keep the ancient Jewish custom of circumcision taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas, disagreeing with them, argued forcefully and at length. Finally, Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them much to everyone's joy that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived at Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported on what God had been doing through their ministry. But then some of the men who had been Pharisees before their conversion stood up and declared that all Gentile converts must be circumcised and be required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and the church elders got together to decide this question. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God, who knows people, who knows people's hearts, confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he gave him to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he also cleansed their hearts through faith. Why are you now questioning God's way by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the special favor of the Lord Jesus. There was no further discussion, and everyone listened as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished... James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for himself. And this conversation, sorry, this conversion of Gentiles agrees with what the prophets predicted. For instance, it is written, Afterward, I will return, and I will restore the fallen kingdom of David. From the ruins, I will rebuild it, and I will restore it so that the rest of humanity might find the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine, this is what the Lord says, he who made these things known long ago. 
And so my judgment is that we should stop troubling the Gentiles who in turn who turn to God, except that we should write to them and tell them to abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols, from sexual immorality, and from consuming blood or eating the meat of strangled animals. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city and every Sabbath for many generations. Then the apostles and the elders to the whole and the elders to the whole church in Jerusalem. Uh, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch in Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church elders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but they had no such instruction from us. So it seemed good to us, having unanimously agreed on our decision to send you these official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who, having risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we are sending Judas and Silas to tell you what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, or eating the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. The four messengers went at once to Antioch, where they were called a general meeting of the Christians, and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church. And that day they read this encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke extensively to the Christians, encouraging and strengthening their faith. And they stayed for a while, and then Judas and Silas went back to Jerusalem with the blessing of the Christians to those who had sent them. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch to assist many others who were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord there. May God add his blessing to his word. Well, we've had a full morning, and you still have to listen to me. You know what, um, Cody, you have achieved um, something for the second year in a row that's happened here at PCC. It's something I call the PCC hat trick, baptism, membership, and dedication. We had that last year on Mother's Day, too. So Cody's a big hockey fan, so I thought you might appreciate that you, too, can get a hat trick, even if you're not playing, so... Gabe, can you stand up for a second? As many of you know, Morgan and Gabe have been doing our uh, youth directing, been youth directors this year. This is Gabe's last Sunday here for the summer. And so, Gabe, we want to say thank you for blessing us as a church with your time, your gifts and skills. Thank you for loving our youth and investing in them. And uh, we're excited for you to have a great summer at camp. And we look forward to hearing about how that goes. And... Uh, so his ministry is not ending, it's just shifting locations. So, Gabe, thank you very much. We still got Morgan here, and we're thankful for that. She's going to be here for most of the summer, except for when she's away on vacation. And uh, 
We're hoping to hire a couple students. So if you know somebody in that 18 to 30 range looking for a job for the summer who's a person of faith, uh, we have a children's ministry position, and we have a youth kind of admin position kind of covering off in a couple different areas. Uh, we'd love to talk to them, so get us some information, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at it. Uh, I think we've had one applicant for the kids one that looks really promising right now, so we're happy with that at least, but if you know somebody, we'd love to hear from them. I've been asked a few times over the last week why I'm not doing questions and thoughts anymore on Sunday mornings where you can text them in. I'm like, because people stop sending in questions and thoughts. Uh, they go, well, we liked it. I'm like, but you didn't send them in. <laughs> so here's the deal. If you have questions or thoughts from the sermon, they're on the screen. If you send something in Monday nights, I'll share my response to them online. You can check it out. We'll link to it in the e-news as well. If nothing comes in, no worries. Um, so I just thought I'd put that out there um, in case it's something that somebody wants. Um, I don't feel like we have to do it, but if it's a value, the option's there for you. And so the number's there, 992-2611. It'll show up throughout the morning on uh, the title slide. This morning we arrive at Acts 15, and we see the church in a spot where it's been spread out from Jerusalem. And if you remember, it's spread out as a result of persecution, forcing the scattering of believers. But the spreading of the gospel as well happened in that. The church has been moving, experiencing physical movement as its outreach spread farther and farther, but also movement as the church grew in new and unexpected ways. Most notable for our sermon today, uh, the church growing to include Gentiles, particularly through the ministry of Peter and Paul. But this movement in the church to include Gentiles causes some difference in opinions, differences of opinions we see. In Acts 15, we see a division between the leaders in Jerusalem and the believers in Antioch. And the leaders from Jerusalem, Pharisees, who are now followers of Jesus, which wrap your mind around that after reading the Gospels. Um, I think that's just an amazing work of God that that happened. Um, they want to require the Gentiles to follow the law of Moses. So yes, they're still Pharisees. But that's what they believe needs to happen. We read in verse 5 that some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They actually believed that the Gentiles could not be saved if they were not circumcised, if they didn't follow the laws of Moses. So this isn't a, um, a hurtful thing. This is them trying to make sure people are doing what they think they have to do. For the Jerusalem Christians, like I said, this was an issue of salvation. So Paul and Barnabas and a few other believers traveled to Jerusalem to have a meeting and discuss these concerns. Now, often when people preach on this passage, they talk about church disagreement, church conflict. And there's some definite principles on solving disagreements we can take from this. But we need to be clear, this passage is not a handbook on solving church conflict. If it is, it's incomplete. For instance, we would suggest in a church conflict that prayer would be a very important part of the process, foundational even, right? Well, I'm pretty sure Paul and Barnabas would agree with that sentiment, but this story doesn't really talk about prayer. It talks about conversations that happen. 
So this passage is not a disagreement-solving checklist. The, the issue in Acts 15, I believe, is far more important and much larger than the issue of solving a disagreement in the church. The disagreements are the symptoms of the actual underlying problem. I believe Acts 15 is a story about whether we are seeking uniformity in the church or unity in the body of Christ. That's different than how to solve conflicts. Uniformity is when we want everyone to be just like us in some significant area. They have to believe what I believe. They have to think like what I think. Lots of different ways that can go. Unity is when we have something common to root ourselves in while valuing all of our uniqueness, while valuing our differences. You see, you can solve a conflict and still not be united. I'd also suggest that one of the largest threats to the church today and to church unity is when we seek uniformity in the church. When we want everybody to have their faith look just like mine. When I say mine, I mean you. Now, uniformity is not a word we use regularly. Perhaps polarization is a of issues is a more appropriate way to describe it in our culture today where we've seen so much polarization. Where we expect others to see things the same way we do. If they don't, we write them off, we dismiss them, we even belittle them. Polarization just, just describes the difference between sides that are each seeking uniformity of their views. I need to be clear. Uniformity was not just an issue in the early church. The church for centuries has sought uniformity. The desire to make sure people look and sound the same way. Just like us. Sometimes it's something as simple as expectations of how people dress on a Sunday morning. I remember growing up in a church where everybody wore three-piece suits, and if you showed up without a suit and tie on, there was talk about how that person needed the Lord and to be saved. Because we all know when Jesus was calming the storms on the sea, he was in a well-fitted three-piece suit with a nice tie. Or perhaps there's the discussion on what translation of the Bible you hold on to. There's people that believe it has to be this specific translation or not that translation. And if you're using that translation, you better watch out because you need the Lord. Maybe you want everyone to sing the exact same type of music or read the same books or listen to the same podcast or watch the same videos or just practice faith the exact same way you do. And if they do, then they'll get it. Sometimes it goes even deeper. There are streams of theology that hold, if you don't agree with their way, with their view of end times, you cannot be a Christian and be saved. There are Bible schools that focus more on teaching you what to believe the way they do than teaching you to wrestle with Scripture and discern what God wants and what God is teaching you and applying it to life. 
We see uniformity in our theology that is rooted in North American academics, North American churches, neglecting the growing body of theological study and work that is coming out of the global church, specifically areas like Africa and Asia. And there are tragic examples of our seeking uniformity as well. We spent time last summer talking about it, and we've continued looking at it over the year. The church's role in residential schools, seeking to make people of First Nations Canada look like and sound like European Christians. A desire for uniformity in the church that partook in a government-mandated attempt to eradicate First Nations culture with devastating effects. That is what happens when we seek uniformity. Our world, time and time again, has taught us that we need to be in control. We need to seek control. And it's one of the largest temptations we face in the church is to make sure that people know I'm right and that people are doing it my way and then I can control how people are doing. And if I get them to do things the right way, then I know they're in because they've got it right. That temptation for control goes back to the very heart of humanity in creation. When Adam and Eve gave into the temptation to be like God, to have that control instead of just trusting God. We see Israel time and time again trying to do things that way and be in control. We see Jonah trying to run from God because he didn't want to do what God wanted. He wanted it his way. That didn't work out for him so well. We see King David trying to take a wife that was not his. We see Saul trying to run things his way. The list goes on and on in Scripture. Our biggest temptation is seeking to control our lives and those around us. And one of the main ways we control things is trying to make everyone like us. And if we can do that, we can feel really good about ourselves. Because then we know we're right because others are doing what we do. So how do we push back on this desire for uniformity? that creeps up in our lives and in the church. And sometimes it's with great intentions. But when we stop listening and we're only telling, it's a good sign that we're not doing things the right way. So what can we do? I believe Acts 15 shows us how to root ourselves in unity in the church instead of seeking uniformity and all it hinges on uh, what we are rooting ourselves in. If we root ourselves in our religious practices in doing the right things to get the right results, sing the right songs, read the right books, do the right practices, think the right way, say the right prayer with the right words, then what we're rooting ourselves in is in religion. So let's look at the story of Acts 15 a bit closer. The leaders from Jerusalem in Acts 15 are seeing the church moving forward in wonderful ways. So much so that even Gentiles are being baptized and coming to faith in Jesus. 
So those who are in the founding pace of the early church want to make it clear the expectations that the Gentiles need to hear the same rules that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem hold to. For them, after all, Jesus was Jewish, and their faith is rooted in what we would call Judaism. Makes sense, to them at least. They want to see uniformity between Jews and Gentiles in how they live out their faith. Perhaps they have good intentions. Perhaps they want to see the church on the same page. But uniformity is often our way of trying to create unity. And when we try to create unity centered on our thoughts and what we want, it fails every time. True unity is found when we root ourselves in something beyond ourselves. No, let me correct that. True unity is found when we root ourselves in someone beyond ourselves. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And this passage shows us a bit how to do that. So, to bring about a conversation on the issues raised, we see Paul and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem, and along the way, they're telling everyone about the Gentile converts. They can't stop talking about what God is doing. And that word convert or conversion is an interesting one. So, what did these Gentiles convert to? Many of us might say, well, they became Christians, they converted to Christianity. The issue then for some would be, well, what set of beliefs should they hold to? We mentioned ways the church has sought uniformity. I would suggest that those problems all begin when we believe we are convincing people to convert to a religion. That conversion means changing your view and accepting a set of beliefs and practices, and that is it. If that is what conversion means to you, you are seeking uniformity and not unity. We said rooting unity is rooting ourselves in someone and not something. Well, think about what we're called to. We're called in Scripture to be disciple makers, to make disciples. We are not disciples of something. We are disciples of someone. We are not disciples of Christianity. We are disciples of Jesus, God incarnate, the one who died, rose again, ascended, will come back again. When we think we're disciples of a religion, we have strayed away from our call to be disciples of Jesus. Now, the word used for conversion in the Greek literally means to turn around. So when we read about converted Gentiles, Gentiles who've been turned around, ask yourself, what are they turned around from? Do we celebrate them turning from pagan religious practices to Christian religious practices? I don't know, that sounds a bit hollow to me. Trading one set of practices for another and that's it? I mean, sure, they're better practices in our eyes. But has their life actually changed? If that's all conversion is, is changing practices, well, that's uniformity. No, we celebrate those Gentiles turning from a life of sin and brokenness to turning to God to follow Jesus and experience the grace and love of the living Jesus while being empowered by the Holy Spirit. We turn to when we convert, we turn to a relationship. We are converted to a relationship. This is one of the distinguishing features of our faith in Jesus. 
We root ourselves in relationship. When we convert to a religion, we're seeking uniformity. We want to see the right practices, the right words, the right actions, and when we turn to a relationship, we are seeking changes in our heart and in our mind and in our life. We're seeking changes in our community. When we turn around to a relationship with Jesus, we put ourselves in a space rooted not in a specific set of practices, but instead we root ourselves in grace. We find ourselves united in our circumstances of that relationship, that we are sinners saved by grace and seeking to live a life that honors Jesus. Our unity comes in that we are sinners saved by the love of God, realized in Jesus' death and resurrection. So how do we root ourselves in relationship and not seek uniformity, especially when we disagree on things? How do we avoid that temptation to control things and seek uniformity? Well, I think there's three things that happen in this passage this morning. One, we gather together with others who have that relationship with Jesus and we listen to each other with value for what the other is saying. We read in Acts 15 that Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So we engage in a relationship and we don't isolate ourselves when we want unity. We don't entrench ourselves with like-minded people, avoiding others, criticizing and mocking them behind their backs. We don't belittle others. We don't see it as us versus them. And I think that's the temptation in this passage, that we can easily demonize the leaders, especially since they're Pharisees, in Jerusalem and say, well, it's them versus them. No, that's not how they see it. They see followers of Jesus who have a difference that they need to talk through. As soon as we start thinking us versus them, we're talking a language of uniform, uniformity, not unity. And if you only want to be with people like you, that is uniformity. Scripture is abundantly clear that we are made up of a diverse body of believers, all important. In fact, the least important parts in the world are some of the most important in God's kingdom. And we're called to have unity within the body of Christ. So we need to be together. And we see Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas heading to Jerusalem to meet them with those who are asking questions and who are expressing concerns. They're willing to meet people where they're at. They're willing to do the work, to be intentional, to be actively involved and show value for others and actually hear what maybe God's putting on their hearts. So we need to seek unity actively. We don't just trip into it. It doesn't happen by accident. And we don't wait for others to initiate it. If you're waiting for somebody else to initiate something of unity, that in itself is being divisive. If you know there's something wrong and you're not working to change it, then you're not being a person of unity. It's quite the opposite. So stop seeing things as us versus them 
and root yourself in the foundational unity we have in Jesus, that we are all sinners saved by grace. And if you can't do that right now, if you're hurt in a relationship and holding on to that, the onus is on you to address that hurt and forgive the other person. So we see the church not just gathering, but they're also sharing what God is doing. To be united in Christ, well, we need to talk about Christ, about the work of the triune God in our lives and through us. We read in Acts 15.4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. We begin discerning by sharing what God is doing in the world through the work of the Holy Spirit. How are we seeing God at work? Paul and Barnabas would share with those in Jerusalem of the lives transformed, that they'd witnessed, of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Gentiles, of miracles and transformation. And together they all celebrated this because God was doing something. They would all consider this. They weren't rooting themselves in, well, I think this, and I think that, or I know this, and I know that, or, well, I Googled this, and this came up, and it has to be true, because I read it on the internet. They're not doing that. Their foundation, their conversation is the work of God, not their work specifically. Yes, they're a part of that, but their conversation's focused on God. And i got to tell you, this is a hard thing for us in our church. We don't like telling stories. I've asked people, can you tell a story? Well, I'm not somebody who likes to talk about it. We need to tell the stories of God at work if we're going to be united as a community of faith. We need to be sharing what God is doing in our midst, and he's doing so much in our midst in so many different ways. It's a privilege to share what God is doing in our lives. And you might think it's something small, but in God's kingdom, it could be something enormous. It could be something that is transformational and encouraging in someone's life. We need to share what God is doing. We need to watch for God at work in those around us. We need to be watching for God at work in unexpected places. Finally, we need to root ourselves in Scripture. We see this council in Jerusalem gathering, and as they do that, James shares at some point. And he acknowledges that they've heard what God is doing, and then he turns to the prophets, sharing the words of the prophets are in, in agreement with this. And he talks a bit more about that. He shares from the prophets, and then considering what has been happening, what Scripture says, he proclaims then, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This group meeting in Jerusalem then discerns from Scripture, and what has been, ha what has been happening, there's a need to continue seeking unity. And then there's a call for the Gentiles living with the Jews in community to have a certain behavior. And so they write this letter to the Gentiles. And they tell them, you're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. 
And I love the response of the church that gets this letter. They're not like, really? I've got to do those four things? I was told that grace was free. No cost, didn't have to do anything but say the prayer. And I know I got the wording right. That's not what they say. They rejoice. They're glad. Why? Because they have a way towards unity within the church. And this request of these four things isn't some random things that they picked off a shelf. It's based on discussion of Scripture. This council in Jerusalem meets and they discern together rooting themselves in what God has done and in Scripture. And if you look in Levitical law, especially what we would see as Leviticus chapter 17 and 18, these are things that Levitical law requires of foreigners living amongst the Jews. And so they're saying, okay, God's called on Gentiles to live this way amongst us. So let's continue that because that's what Scripture calls on them to do. And these four things, as well, is recognized will help bring a sense of unity between these two cultures that are so different but are worshiping the same God. It'll bring unity and not division. The answer they get comes from gathering together, valuing each other, watching God at work in the world, and considering what he's doing and rooting themselves in Scripture. In short... They're united around Christ's call in their life to be followers of Jesus. That's what they're centered on, is that relationship. And our unity as a church today is still rooted in the work of God in the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the working of the Holy Spirit in the lives as revealed in God's Word. That's what we anchor ourselves on. This relationship we have with the triune God made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That we are all sinners needing the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That we are all called to live the lives Christ wants us to live. This isn't a free-for-all of everything in our diversity. We're just united around a relationship with Jesus. And I think we have to ask ourselves, not just once, but ongoing, am I seeking things my way or unity? Am I seeking uniformity or unity? Do we burden others with expectations so we're more comfortable with them? Are we valuing the diversity of God's kingdom? And all the beauty that holds. And drawing people to being united in the love and grace of Jesus as we seek to be obedient to the living word of God. To Jesus Christ as his disciples. It comes down to this. Are we willing to let go of our lives and all the things we want to hold on to? And let go of that and hold on to Jesus and let him steer our life. This is not an easy journey for us. This is not a, okay, that's it, I'm up for unity, I'm going to leave that behind. This is ongoing. We are good at holding on to what we know. 
We live in a culture where we talk and we don't listen. We live in a culture where we have a wealth of information and we can feel like we have in-depth knowledge of anything. And what that means is we don't have to stop and listen. We don't have to listen to one another. We don't even have to listen to God. And that's a problem. I've seen uniformity in my life way too much. I walked alongside a church growing up that divided itself, each side entrenching, tearing each other apart. That is not the love of God. That is not rooted in the relationship of Jesus Christ. I grew up in a community, voted one of the best communities in Canada to raise a family. But I got to tell you, that's a community all about uniformity. White, suburban, middle class, houses look the same on the streets, everything is uniform and has to be perfect. We finally felt God's call to leave there and experience the unity of the world and its diversity. And what a blessing that was. My friends, the unity of the body of Christ comes at the cost of our sacrificing our desires and our interests to be people of God's kingdom and to live his way. That is the cost of discipleship. And it's worth every bit we pay in our lives for it. Because we live to serve the king. And let's be united in that truth. Please bow with me in prayer. Jesus, you are our king. And yet we rebel against you so often, seeking to do things our way, to be the person we want to be, to live faith our way and make others like us. Help us instead, Lord, to yield up our control and to seek to be like you, to live our lives in honor of you, to give you glory, and to live with you as our king and as a part of your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.